Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Dr. Marsha Ledford. Marsha is a civil rights attorney as well as an Episcopal priest. She writes, speaks, teaches, and preaches about the need for progressive Christians to speak up in public about social justice. So we're going to be talking to her about her philosophy and all that she's doing to help societies marginalized. Dr. Ledford, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Curtis. It's a pleasure to be with you. Why don't you start off by giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Well, as a teenager, I sensed a call to ordained ministry, but I wasn't seeing women at the altar or the pulpit. And so I decided to study law. I figured it was a way to help people. And um, so I did that for many, many years, but I grew increasingly frustrated, Curtis, because you cannot argue the gospel in court and expect to be successful. This was the lesson that I learned. So uh, I finally relented to the pushing, um, the poking, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. And I went to seminary starting at the age, I think, of 48 or 49. And uh, then my, after I, I got out of seminary and was ordained, I had a parish in the Latino community, communities in Detroit, uh, and I just became appalled at what I was seeing our federal government do to people, to families, tearing them apart, tearing children from their parents who were brought here as children themselves without a documentation. And so I decided that one of the best things that I could do would be to uh, study political theology. And uh, I earned a doctor of ministry in political theology and started my current mission, which is called Political Theology Matters. So that's where we are now. So tell everybody what political theology is. All right. Political theology is uh, actually got a pretty simple definition. It's about speaking one's faith uh, in public, in the public square, to achieve greater social justice. So... It could be any faith tradition. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, although I'm a Christian cleric. And so, of course, I'm going to talk about Christianity because that's what I know and that's what I believe. Uh, But it it is equally applicable to any of the faiths present in the United States. Um, And we are becoming increasingly pluralistic in the United States, meaning that we have more than just, say, Christianity, or Judaism, or Islam. Um, And in Southeast Michigan, we have the largest Arab Muslim population outside of the Middle East. 
Uh, so it's very important for me, and we have a very active Jewish community. It's very important for me to work from an interfaith perspective because we uh, have lots and lots of different religious traditions around the world represented in Southeast Michigan. So it's a faith message. Uh, it's in the public square, and that could mean lots of things. It can be at your city hall or the halls of Congress. It could be at uh, any place where the public expects to be able to go to be admitted. It could be on a podcast like this with Curtis. Uh, so those are, those are the primary components. And then of course, you want to get your message out to as large an audience as possible. So that's the sort of the third requirement. Um, you can speak, speak to a small group and still be a public theologian. Uh, but the idea is to get as wide an audience uh, to hear your message as possible where, whenever you can. Do you feel like American democracy is on the right track? Why, why not? I think that we are just uh, barely within the constitutional guardrails. January 6th was one of the most, in my opinion, horrible things to have, ha have happened to the United States uh, in a long, long time. And Pearl Harbor was bad because we were attacked by a foreign entity. This was bad because we were attacked from within and uh, the constitutional process that the Senate was undertaking at the time, the last step prior to the inauguration of a president-elect was nearly stopped permanently. And if you think about it in those terms, it's pretty scary. I think the midterm elections in 2022 are going to be very, very important for uh, the future of our country. I think we've got to uh, rein in the extreme viewpoints of the, the GOP, the Republican Party. And we have to remember that we are a constitutional people and that our constitution is very clear on uh, what we are expected to do in the line of succession, say from one, one president to another. But I can't underscore how serious it is that we get back to using reason and civ civil discourse and the vote to direct our future rather than people flooding into the Capitol trying to destroy part, parts of it, uh, trying to kidnap the vice president and the speaker of the house and those kinds of things at the behest of an outgoing sore loser of a president. So we're, we're on the right path, but it's still very fragile. Why do you feel that Christianity has become so divided? That's uh, Christianity has always been divided. 
uh, particularly within Protestantism, which supported and in many ways protected and extended slavery and using the Bible to justify slavery and keep it in place. You know, there used to be an expression that Sunday at 11 o'clock was the most racially divided hour in the United States. And that's been true really since the inception of our country. There's always been um, a white church that has tried to enslave or has enslaved and controlled people of color, primarily of African descent. What's been going on over these last five years or so has revealed the crack in our foundation that's always been there. And we know that there is uh, this white controlling church and the black church that has uh, been a source of, it's been a balm and a source of liberation for people of color all along. Uh, the people who were involved in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol were angry white people with flags that said Jesus saves and nooses and Confederate flags and all the ugliness that we saw that day. So it's not like it, we have just become divided. It's, it's always been there. It's just our flaws have been more thoroughly revealed probably than any other time. In your, in your bio, you talk about the spirituality of resistance. Tell us what that means. Sure. The spirituality of resistance is a two-part thing. First of all, all of us have to do the inner work uh, through prayer, meditation, through reading and study and journaling, uh, through reading about current events and engaging with those current events and recognizing what makes us tick and what issues really bother us. What keeps us up at night? In other words, what, what disgusts us? Because disgust is probably one of the most powerful of human emotions. Often when we are disgusted, we act uh, to, to deal with the situation that disgusts us. So the spirituality of resistance is in part, you know, looking at what upsets us, but also what's important to us. And then we take that knowledge and information and we find a, a group to work with on these issues to work shoulder to shoulder, to engage, take our private, what we have learned to be our private power, what drives us, what are we compassionate about, what do we want to work on, and then join it uh, with others into a collective power. And by doing that, and typically a, a really good example of that would be a congregation or a community organizing entity where you're working with other people of like mind who, you know, throw, excuse me, throw in together, throw in their skills, abilities, knowledges, contacts, resources, and they aggregate this power 
to resist evil, either structural evil or some uh, some created situation that is not acceptable. And in doing that, it allows us to to not experience two very also very important emotions. One is avoidance. When we spend time avoiding stuff, we waste a lot of energy on it instead of, you know, acknowledging the pain and moving into it. And this is a good expression for right now, you know, sort of moving into the needle, uh, moving into the pain, recognizing that it's there and naming it. And when we name it, we disempower it. We've already made it less powerful than it just was before we named it. So we, we name it. We um, stop wasting energy, getting away from it, and we work towards eradicating it. The other emotion that we're able to avoid by exercising a spirituality of resistance through inner work and public action, public group action, is that we, we are not denying that it's there because that we've seen evidence of what happens when people are in denial, say, of the racial divide of this country, and then these, uh, we see you know, millions of white people who have bought into the QAnon conspiracy and other conspiracies uh, because w- they've created an alternate reality that is in no way grounded in the truth. And it's just making everything worse. And it frankly, you know, causes people to do really dangerous, uh, serious things. There was a fellow the other day that was arrested at the Capitol. He had, I think he had a bomb with him in his truck. um, And he had uh, bought into the QAnon conspiracy. So now he's, you know, been taken into custody and he's going to end up being in federal prison, very likely for a long time. Uh, So by just acknowledging the difficulty, uh, we find people to work with and we are able to stay away from denial and avoidance, which is not healthy for us. So I, I teach a lot about the spirituality of resistance because I think that it working for a common cause for social justice for something that will result in a more inclusive, compassionate, and uh, supportive society is maybe one of the most rewarding things uh, I've ever experienced in my life. I'll send you some information uh, about the spirituality of resistance in my show notes. Absolutely. Explain what civil discourse is and how can those who want to be trained and doing it, how can they get the training to do it? Sure. There's several courses out there, but I'm going to talk about the one that I'm most familiar with. It's called uh, Make Me an Instrument of Your Peace. It's offered by uh, the Episcopal Church, of which uh, I'm a priest. It's free, and I'll send the link to Curtis. Uh, You can do it in your own time, and you can either do an individual track or you could do a group track with others. Uh, And you learn lots of uh, techniques to employ when you're speaking with someone else 
with whom you don't agree and you know you're trying to work out the issues without the con- conversation devolving into a shouting match or whatever you know, and so, some of the techniques that are encouraged by this program or taught by this program are engaging in deep listening without the without the goal of your winning the argument now it's about finding people where they're at and uh, listening deeply to their concerns. We, all of us as human beings, have a basic need to be heard and understood. And so civil discourse is about doing that. It's not about, you know, getting into a forensic debate and defeating your opponent. That's what, not what civil discourse is about. And it's important to speak from your own perspective instead of somebody else's and from your own experience. So these are some of the ideas that are explored in the civil discourse training uh, through the Episcopal Church. I highly recommend it. Speaking of the church, Christians have a concept that states that we are one in the body of Christ. Explain what that means to you. Well, this goes back to what I alluded to with the spirituality of resistance, where we find a group or entity to work with that shares our uh, views on a particular issue. We are created to complement one another as the body of Christ. So St. Paul writes about this in his first letter to the Corinthians in the 12th chapter. And I think it's probably some of his most eloquent and poetic writing. And he talks about for for we are all one body in Christ. And he asks some questions. It's a rather long uh, discourse. It's uh, probably 25 or 30 verses. But he talks about, uh, he asks the question for, if the body were all I, where would the hearing be? In other words, we can't all, you know, be the lookers. We can't all be the hearers. We need doers and thinkers and all of us working together as one entity for greater social justice. And indeed, this is what he taught the disciples when he sent them out two by two to go out and heal and listen and help people who are on the margins. So uh, community organizing is a wonderful example of us acting as the body of Christ. And the the community organizing entity does not have to be a faith-based entity. It can be a secular entity, but if it's working on issues that are important to you, even from a faith perspective, that's awesome. That's wonderful because not all of us have the advantage of living, you know, near a a faith-based community organizing or any community organizing group. So this way you can still act as the body of Christ, whether you're in a faith-based group or not. And uh, you can still satisfy what St. Paul was talking about by sharing your skills and abilities to complement others in the group within which you work. 
explain the difference between political theology and American civil religion. Okay. Oh, uh, we have seen a terrible example of civil religion going on right now in this country. Uh, And it's coming from white radical evangelicalism. And what happens is you take an ideology, not from a sacred text, you take some idea and you make it sacred. So here's an example. We have seen white privilege be made into something that is like a sacrament or sacrosanct. It has tremendous importance to a particular group and it becomes like it becomes a religion. It becomes something that you worship and sacrifice for. And then it becomes creedalized. For example, you've heard of the Nicene Creed or the Lord's Prayer you could call is kind is sort of a creed. It's something that people know that uh, summarizes this sacred belief in a way that people can remember it. So uh, think of an, a forward expression that uh, arose in 2015, uh, usually occurring in white letters on a red hat. Got any ideas? Make, make America great again. Quite right. Okay, so so now we have this sort of creedal statement, and this is a very dangerous uh, phrase because it it evokes the idea that America used to be great. Well, what was going on when this was purportedly true? Uh, there was even more racism than there is now. It was before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Acts were passed in uh, 64 and 65, respectively. It may even go back to a time when uh, African Americans were slaves. I I think that's the message in Make America Great Again. I think it's a a very dangerous idea. And then with civil religion, so you have this uh, ideology of white privilege that has been made sacred, Then you turn it into a creed, make America great again. In other words, go back to when white privilege was even more powerful. And then you, you know, you basically force it on everybody. And we saw that at the insurrection. We saw this, you know, make America great again was all over the place as people marauded our capital, the symbol of our democracy, the seat of our democracy and try to steal an election by stopping a constitutional process. So that's America, That's an example of American civil religion that we're seeing right now. Political theology is different because it takes something from a sacred text and promotes it in the public square in order to achieve a greater degree of justice and inclusion. So Jesus famously said to Peter three times, feed my sheep. So this is something, you know, this 
is is Jesus just talking about giving somebody a, a fish for the day? No, I don't think so. I think it's it's this idea of nurturing the whole person, nurturing all the people. And we can do that by making laws uh, equal on their face so that people aren't inadvertently discriminated against if they happen to be people of color. We've had we've had laws like that that have been struck down by the Supreme Court because they did that. Political theology is about taking something from your sacred writing and bringing it to the fore, advocating for it in public as part of the democratic debate and not to, you know, uh, force it down everybody's throat, but to become one of the many voices that should be participating in the, uh, the democracy of a nation. So those are basically the differences. Do you have any questions about that? Yes. How do you feel like the country is going now? You talked about 2015 and make America great again. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like things are going now with, with the transition of power? Well, the idea that the election was rigged is complete nonsense. We've had audit after audit after audit. And, you know, never mind the fact that there were tens of millions of people who were absolutely fed up with the former president and want him, wanted him out of there. And they voted him out. How you can argue that down-ballot Republicans who won their seat in some way could still be tinkered with so that the office of president on the ballot could be manipulated. I I just, (laughs) I don't understand. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's completely illogical. I, uh, I am dismayed that uh, Trump seems to still have wield quite a bit of power with the GOP, even months after he's out of office. Again, I think that uh, holding uh, the Senate and the House right now in Democratic power is going to be very, very important as we move forward. And I'm, I'm not convinced that we will hold both houses, both chambers. I'm, I'm really not sure what, what is going to happen. The Senate is more precarious because the margin is already so razor thin. But um, uh, I'm very concerned. I can't say uh, strongly enough that we have to get out there and make sure that people who are going to uphold the Constitution are elected to federal office. That will be key in our extricating ourselves from this nightmare we've been in. Well, you know, there's been a lot of protesting going on in the past year or so. Yeah. What What do people do after the protests are over, the cameras are gone, and everybody mm-hmm. goes back home? What do you suggest they do then? Right. Uh, that's that's a good question, Curtis. And I, and I think there's several things that we can do. What I hear from people a lot of the time is, oh, these problems are so complex that I don't even know where to start. Well, there's lots of places where we can start. People get tired, I think, of hearing this, but the first thing that we can do is to call our representatives. 
particularly in the Congress. We have one representative in the House, and we all have two senators for our states. So, for example, for me, my two senators and my representative uh, vote the way that I want them to on legislation for the most part. They're all Democrats. They've all been, two of them are very seasoned. One is somewhat new, but people will say to me, well, do they need to hear from me? You know, it seems kind of silly to contact somebody who's going to vote the way I want them to anyway. They absolutely need to hear from you. And this is why. They keep track of these statistics. They keep track of what their constituents are saying because it helps them back up something when they vote for it or not vote for it. And they can say, look, I've heard 66% of my constituents tell me that they want me to vote this way. And so I'm in support of it. I agree with it. And so that's what I'm going to do. So you empower your representatives and senators uh, when you contact them positively. Of course, you know, it's, it also is important for your, your federal officials to hear from you if you disagree. And right now that's particularly true for moderate leaning Republicans who are not, and you know, who do not like the Trump style GOP and are not happy with the direction of the company, country, but they still identify as Republicans. This is when you can make a huge difference by uh, chipping away at this Trumpicanism, I call it, you know, by letting your, your, folk, your elected representatives know what you think. So writing letters, contacting them, emailing them. I've got a, a downloadable sheet that you can get that will help you quickly find all the, con- the contact information for your all of your representatives at the state and federal level. And you can do that in 10 minutes. And you could take 10 minutes a day to contact somebody about a piece of legislation or to talk to a state official about something. You know, you can identify community organizing groups that are near you that you could volunteer for. And that's huge. There is a I'll send this link to you, Curtis, but there's a group called uh, it's a helps nonprofits find volunteers based on issues that they work on called, um, I believe it's catchify.org. I'll send it to you, though it's in my notes. And you can easily find something that you can work on. And of course, during the pandemic, uh, you know, we're not having a lot of direct contact, but there are still ways for you to do things to help volunteer on an issue that's important to you. So download this one sheet from my website. Uh, Curtis will have that, uh, that link and I can, a little bit later, I can give you my website name, uh, website URL. I've got videos on how to uh, be in contact easily on Twitter. Pol- politicians like Twitter and so do journalists. And it's really easy to punch out a, a short little message. And if you load the handles into your Twitter account for these folks, you can quickly contact them. I've got uh, other videos on my website that you can watch. There are some free ones about uh, learning how to be a faith-based advocate. 
So just to get you started, there's a few things. I've got, you know, lots and lots of resources to help you take your sense of disgust or disappointment, whatever you want to call it, uh, and turn it into positive action for change. And you don't have to do some big thing. The, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement did things by lots of people doing lots of little things. There were people doing big things too, but uh, we all have to, every part that we play goes back to that analogy of St. Paul about us being the body of Christ working together. Well, speaking of your website, go ahead and throw out your website, okay. your social All media right. links, as well sure. as how people, if they want to learn more about political theology as well, give out all your full contact information. All right. The URL is politicaltheologymatters.com. That's politicaltheologymatters.com. And you can find all kinds of resources there in the courses and the downloads and all that stuff. I have a book coming out later, late in the year, that uh, I'll send Curtis a note when that drops, um, and you'll be able to get that. My email is Marsha at Political Theology Matters. And my, uh, I have a Facebook page by the same name. And um, my handles for Twitter and Instagram are both at Doc Ledford, D-O-C-L-E-D-F-O-R-D. You want to give any information about the book or you just want to? Sure. Uh, so this is uh, intended to be a how-to manual for people to get started in political theology. And uh, the it will cover some of what I've talked about with spiritual about the spirituality of resistance and, you know, the need to find a group to work with to aggregate our collective power and ways, other ways that we can engage in uh, faith-based advocacy. You have any final thoughts before we close it out? Well, this is really, I'm very pleased that you invited me. This has been a pleasure. And, uh, I invite your audience to be in touch and to check out the website and my social media and, you know, uh, follow the Facebook group and uh, let me know if you uh, engage in an act of faith-based theology, theology. Let me hear about it. I'd love to know your story. I'd love to know about uh, what is of interest to you and what resources would be helpful to you. Yes, and listeners, please be sure to follow, rate, review, and share after listening to this episode. Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Dr. Marsha Ledford, politicaltheologymatters.com. Marsha, appreciate you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. Go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Dr. Marsha Ledford, politicaltheologymatters.com. Marsha, appreciate you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. 
Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.